If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. I got passionate about mycorrhizal fungi because we wouldn't exist, life as we know it wouldn't exist without this relationship. What is mycorrhizal fungi and why do you and I and pretty much all life on earth depend on them? How does soil microbiology impact the bioavailability of the nutrients within our foods? That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons and Buns, a community where people meet every day to trade things like clothing, houseplants, furniture, and art. You can check it out first by downloading the app Buns, that's spelled B-U-N-Z on your smartphone, and I'll tell you more later. For now, to our conversation with Dr. Chris Nichols, the chief scientist at Pachateri and a world-renowned leader in the movement to regenerate soils for healthy food, healthy people, and a healthy planet. Chris first met the co-founder of Pachateri at a conference in Rome, and the company focuses on helping farmers and ranchers be able to measure the amount of carbon they put back into their soils through regenerative practices. And this is really important because in our current economic model, our farmers, who really also are our most direct earth stewards, they're only rewarded for extracting things from the land for consumers to buy, and not rewarded for doing things that support the ongoing biological activity activity in their farm ecosystems or helping to regenerate healthy soil organic matter. So with these carbon sequestration measurements, being able to quantify this, they're able to help farmers and ranchers to be compensated financially by the Canadian government for helping to offset carbon while serving as our vital earth stewards. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast for creatives, visionaries, and entrepreneurs dreaming of a sustainable future. Thank you for bringing your light. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I grew up on a farm in southwestern Minnesota, so my family, multi-generation farmers, has always been involved in agriculture and really helped to instill that passion within me for agriculture and for the soil. And then when I went to the University of Minnesota as an undergraduate, 
I got the opportunity to be able to work in a research lab and study mycorrhizal fungi. And I became enamored with mycorrhizal fungi and have been passionate about soil microbiology since then. Uh, I went through master's degree focusing my projects on, on soil mycorrhizal fungi and then also a doctorate and really then moving back to the upper Midwest. I did graduate school on the East Coast of the United States and then moving back to the upper Midwest, North Dakota, and being able to work with some farmers that were putting together some of these really innovative practices where the things that I had learned about in school were actually being applied to the land and really making a difference in their productivity as well as in the, the quality of the soil and being able to essentially heal the land. Mm. And what was it about mycorrhizal fungi that really that really struck you to begin with? They have been essential to the creation of soil. It's the oldest relationship between plants and microbes. It actually resulted in the evolution of plants as we know it. Land plants didn't evolve in without the relationship with mycorrhizal fungi. The mycorrhizal fungi helped those plants be able to get the nutrients that they needed from their environment. It actually started with an aquatic precursor that was a cyanobacteria, like a single-celled algal organism, and the fungus in the aquatic environment, in the oceans. And that was what started this relationship where the mycorrhizal fungi were able to obtain nutrients for the uh, single-celled organism, for the photosynthetic organism that then provided the mycorrhizal fungi with the food, the sugars that the mycorrhizal fungi needed to be able to grow. And as these organisms washed up on land, we didn't have soil. Soil is organic. It's organic derived from photosynthetic activity of the plants and how they interact with the organisms. And so as these precursors, as this cyanobacterium and fungus washed up on the land, which was basically a mineral environment, they had to work together to be able to create an environment in which they could get the nutrients from that mineral component, break down the rocks and be able to release those nutrients and get them into the plants. And then the plants would do photosynthesis, create organic components that have carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, and that went into actually creating soil. So for me, I got passionate about mycorrhizal fungi because we wouldn't exist, life as we know it wouldn't exist without this relationship. Wow, I feel like in conversations to do with sustainability and enriching life and biodiversity on Earth, we don't really talk much about mycorrhizal fungi, but it sounds like they have been key and they still are key today in supporting the health of our planet. Yes, very much so. We had great soils that evolved over time with this relationship. And as civilizations grew and we started growing crops on the, the soil environment, we had a very rapid decline in organic matter in our soils. And it's key to 
have this relationship occurring in order to be able to build back up that organic matter. Mm. And to help us understand the importance of this work, can you help us paint a picture of the current condition of our soil health across the United States and maybe even across the globe, especially in industrialized nations, and what carbon has to do with this? So as I was saying, we've had a depletion when we do, uh, when civilization occurs and communities, societies move on to the landscape to grow food crops, one of the main things that we'll do is tillage or basically turning over the soil with a piece of equipment. And in that process of turning over the soil, the organic matter, the carbon that was buried in the soil for hundreds to thousands of years and has been, had been building up in that soil environment gets exposed to oxidative practices. It gets exposed to oxygen because you basically invert what may be buried about six to nine inches down and bring that up to the surface. And when you bring that up to the surface, that's going to expose that organic matter to very rapid decomposition. So we've, we've lost about 75% or so of the organic matter in our soils as the result of this. And it happened fairly quickly what we need to do is actually restore that organic matter. The soil itself is really important when it has organic matter. The soil is that organic component that I talked about. It's not the mineral environment, but the organic environment. And when you have the, the carbon and the oxygen and the hydrogen that is in the soil environment, that organic matter now can bind to nutrients that the plants need in the soil. And those nutrients normally are not very readily available, but when they're bound to organic components, they're in what's called an exchangeable chemical formula. So that allows them to become more, more easily available to the plants. And the other thing that will happen when we have organic matter in our soils is that we will have the, the structure to our soil where you have more open space. When soils are primarily mineral and they don't have a lot of organic matter, what ends up happening is those minerals, the soil will collapse. The minerals are very close together and there isn't a lot of open space between the minerals that are in the soil. And so what ends up happening is that you get very compacted soils. When you have organic matter in the soils, it's a little bit like having a, a sponge or these openings in the soil environment. And those openings in the soil environment are going to allow for water to get into our soils much more quickly and water to be held in the soils for a longer period of time. And when we look at this in reference to the weather patterns that we're seeing, we're seeing heavy rainfall times, but then long periods of time between those heavy rainfalls. And so you want the rainwater to get into the soil very quickly so you don't get a lot of runoff and a lot of loss of the water as well as runoff that's going to carry nutrients away from the soil environment. And you also want to have the porosity, the open space in the soil environment so that the water that gets in will actually stay for a longer period of time between rainfall events. 
So it's really critical to being able to build up organic matter in our soils, not just for taking CO2 out of the atmosphere and putting it into the soil as organic matter, but also really important for allowing us to be able to thrive in the climate with weather patterns that we're currently seeing and are going to see for at least the next hundred years. And if we know all of these benefits of no-till farming and these regenerative practices, why is the norm of agriculture doing the opposite? There are several reasons why conventional agriculture, most agricultural practices are still utilizing the tools that we've had in the past, the the chemical and the mechanical tools, rather than utilizing no-till practices, even just reducing tillage a little bit can, can help, as well as reducing or eliminating chemical use, relying more on biological practices, and implementing grazing operations. We see all of the benefits to that, but we are sort of stuck in an environment in which there are a lot of economic pressures on farmers to produce a lot of food and to produce it very quickly. And it's very difficult if if your job is basically making a whole lot of food and making it very quickly. When you make changes in the practices that you're using and potentially have to get some different tools to do no-till agricultural practices or getting livestock to incorporating some grazing, any of those things are a cost to the farmer. So it's important for us to look at building programs that are going to help to provide support for the farmer to take those risks. It's a financial cost for the farmer, and you may not see the benefit immediately. Oftentimes, when you, if, you're, if you have a particular company and you make some change that is recommended, that change or that practice, you only do that if you can see the turnaround relatively quickly in an economic gain. For biological practices to be introduced, these regenerative practices, we don't always see the immediate gains that you would be looking for in trying to change your industry. And so it becomes difficult for farmers to be able to implement these practices and changes. So the issue is really that our current economic model incentivizes farmers to maximize yield and focus on the amount that they're producing rather than the quality of the food or how they're taking care of the lands. That is very much the case. It is unfortunate that, again, the way that we look at, especially in the U.S., the way that we look at the value of land for the individual farmer is based on yield. It's not based on the quality of the soil. So when a farmer is looking for how much he or she can borrow in order to be able to buy the seed and potentially pay for labor, pay for fuel, pay for any equipment costs, all of those types of things, for the farmer to be able to borrow money, the collateral the farmer has is the land. And the value of that land is not determined. We haven't monetized soil. The value of the land is determined based on yield. Mm. And so the pressure continues for the farmer. It's a 
circular argument. It's sort of a catch-22 because you're constantly under pressure to produce more, but the practices that you utilize in order to be able to keep up this level of production aren't always the practices that are going to be able to provide a benefit. And so what farmers and ranchers are seeing now is as they've lost the quality of their soil, they're having to spend more and more on different chemical tools, on adding more fertility or helping to um, combat various types of pests and diseases with chemical tools because the system that normally would be able to manage that comes from biological activity. And again, it takes time for that system to get going and get working. They can see the benefits in the end, but short term, how are they able to get the, the funds and apply for the loans with a collateral that's solely based on annual yields? Well, you've been at the forefront of scientific research on soil health for quite some time, and I think that's really key because we have been talking a lot lately on the podcast about the importance of soil health, so much so that I feel like it's almost becoming a show about soil and farming. But truly, as you mentioned, all life on Earth depends on the health of our soils. So our farmers today really play an important role in Earth stewardship and in being at the forefront, helping to directly address climate change, enriching biodiversity, improving public health, and and so forth. So I'd love for you to help crystallize this concept for us by drawing upon the research that you've come across. So what are some key studies that have been done on soil health and what are their implications for us? Some key studies that have been done on soil health are studies that have shown that the diversity of the crops that we're growing, whether that's cash crops or the diversity of the, the cash crops mixed with cover crops, that that diversity is essential to being able to create the right type of a system. The system that we're looking at, and I discuss systems a lot because every action has a reaction. And that's what we've had to learn, again, going back to this issue with things like ecosystem services, we haven't looked at the reactions and been able to show that those reactions are things that we need to pay attention to. It was always, well, if we destroy this particular farm or this particular soil, there's plenty of land out there, we can just move to a new environment. And that's, in the beginning, that's what civilizations did. Now it's not just let's move to a new environment, but we can add supplements to make things that are poor quality actually improve. But what we're finding is that the biggest keys to doing this are helping to enhance the diversity and the complexity of the whole biological system. Again, going back to mycorrhizal fungi, it was this key relationship between a cyanobacterium and a fungus, but that relationship, when it got onto land, actually relied upon a number of different organisms to get it to work both macroscopic organisms as well as other microscopic organisms, other bacteria and fungi, um, microscopic insects. All of these things are synergistic. And diversity is a really big key to understanding how we can play into those synergies and how we can enhance and utilize 
the efficiencies of those synergies. Mm. So that is a, is a big key. We're also research that's showing the importance of carbon and the complexity of carbon. There are many things that in research studies we've seen in the past in looking at carbon that we would put carbon into very distinct pools, uh, very recalcitrant, old, stabilized carbon, and then you had more labile carbon compounds. And more recent research is actually showing that carbon is a spectrum across both of those components, that you have labile components that can become stabilized, and you have stable components that maybe aren't as stabilized are or are as important as these other components. And so as we begin to be able to utilize some new technologies, and again, some of these are some tools that we're going to be utilizing through through Pachateri to be able to look more at the complexity of what carbon and organic matter looks like and how it is stabilized. And then also the strong linkage that is obvious, but so important between the plants that are growing and how they're going to be putting carbon below ground, different rooting depths and different um, root architectures and different microorganisms that are associated with these different plants. So that again goes into that diversity, but it also goes into looking at that complexity of carbon and being able to make sure that if we are wanting to get carbon into our soils, one of the big keys is to make sure that we're growing something as much as possible all the time. And oftentimes we look at our farms or we look at our gardens or we look at our landscape and say, hey, I can only grow something for a couple months out of the year. That may be what you're growing for a, a particular crop, for a particular food product, but you can actually be growing something in your soil for a much longer period of time. And when you do that, that adds to the diversity, it adds to putting more carbon in your soil, it adds to building up organic matter, it adds to bringing in different micro and macroscopic organisms, including a plethora of insects that come in with that diversity. So there are so many things that looking at these synergies and building on those relationships is incredibly important. Mm. And how about public health? What do we know about how soil microbiology and soil health impacts the nutrient levels in our foods? This is a really exciting area of research, and it also is, is really an exciting area of understanding what we can do to changing our food system as well as our healthcare system. We are a country in the United States, uh, and some of this is also true in, in Canada, but many first world countries now are operating under a paradigm in which individuals are suffering from obesity and malnutrition at the same time. Mm -hmm. Our gut microbiome is a complex synergistic environment and how we process food in our gut microbiome is important for how our bodies are getting various types of mineral nutrients. Mm -hmm. 
And so it's incredibly important to make sure that the food that we're consuming not just has mineral content to it, but that those minerals can be processed by the gut microbiome. So what's happening is we've had both a decline in the concentration of minerals in much of our food, and a lot of this is linked to the fact that when we are looking at production, for the farmer, I said, the value of the farmer's land and the economic value for that farmer to be able to utilize that land as collateral is based on yield. And yield isn't looking at the quality of the food, it's at the amount. And when we are looking for producing more and more food, more and more, higher and higher yields, the plant is driven to what most of our food is, are the, the seeds, the progeny for the plants. The plants will normally not produce a lot of seeds. Most plants don't want to produce a lot of seeds because that's a lot of energy. But what they'll do is they'll put the best resources into every seed they produce because they want to make sure that if that seed is produced and the energy is used to make that seed, that seed has the best chance to be able to grow. What we've done in the way that we have selected for various varieties and in the way that we're growing our crops, by now selecting for varieties and driving the plants to produce more and more seeds, the plant doesn't have the resources and doesn't have the time to make sure that those seeds have the best chance, which means putting in various types of complex biomolecules, things like antioxidants and polyphenolics. These resources aren't put into the plant, into the seeds, because you have to produce a whole lot of seeds. So what you do is you fill the, the um, seed coat, you're going to end up filling that with sugars, with complex carbohydrates, but essentially still sugars, because you just have to you just have to get a seed to a certain size. And those carbohydrates could help the plant, the seed to germinate and work with the soil microbiology to be able to get the nutrients that that new plant would need to grow. So it isn't the plant not giving its progeny, its seeds, a good chance, but it's not giving them the best chance because it's not giving them all of the resources, all of the antioxidants and polyphenolics and amino acids that that seed needs to grow. So what we've done is we've decreased the mineral content and the antioxidant polyphenolic amino acid content of our food. And when our gut microbiome tries to process that food, then it doesn't have enough resources to be able to do that. So what it will do is it will trigger our brains to, it gives off signals that go to our brains and say, well, you have to eat more because we need more of the nutrients. And the only way we're going to get them is if you feed us. And so we end up over consuming to try and 
alleviate the fact that we're malnourished, that we're not getting the nutrients from our food. Mm. So we're a first world country in which our population is suffering from obesity and malnutrition at the same time. Mm. And for the first time in our history, for the last three years, our life expectancy has been declining. So children that are born today, I have a new great nephew who is a about a year younger than my great niece and my great nephew's life expectancy is less than hers. Mm. And this is not something that is sustainable or anything that we should accept in our society. And if we looked at modifying the way that we grow our food and valuing the food that we're growing, that would allow us to change that very rapidly. What this reminds me of is, well, first of all, our understanding of nutrition is still the tip of the iceberg, but there's this concept called nutritionism where people are overly focusing on the known minerals and macronutrients within our foods without valuing the microbiology and the synergy in our foods. So, you know, how our gut processes these different foods. So whole foods are much more than the sum of its parts. And so it's the same where we're not valuing the biological activity in nature. We're also not valuing the biological activity within our own bodies as well. Exactly. And this becomes incredibly important. I mean, it's great that we're sort of having this awakening of consumers that are starting to look more at what their food is made of and to, to value the, the mineral content in, their, in our food. But again, if we don't think about it with this linkage of the microbiome that you talked about, what ends up happening is those nutrients aren't going to be bio, bioavailable to us. Our gut microbiome can't process them. When I discuss this with others, I'll use this example. Uh, many years ago, when people started looking at taking mineral supplements, vitamins became more important for people to be taking a, a supplement on a daily basis of, of vitamins and minerals. One of the big minerals that people started looking at, one of the big nutrients was calcium. So we were having issues with osteoporosis and, and other issues like that. And one of the highest calcium concentration supplements that you can find actually comes from the shells of shellfish. The issue is, so there got to be a, an industry that grew around providing calcium supplement that was calcium carbonate that came from shellfish. And it was, you know, an inexpensive source to get the calcium carbonate from. It was, it was great. But what ended up happening is that calcium is not bioavailable. The gut microbiome can't break that down. And so what ended up occurring was people would buy the supplement and it basically would get expelled from their bodies as waste. And so what we started to find is we did research on this. We started to say, okay, you know what? We have to change either how we're making the calcium carbonate or getting it from a different source so that the gut microbiome can process that. 
So it's incredibly important for us as consumers to be looking at our food and reading about our food and learning more, uh, looking at the labels on the back, learning more about where our food comes from and how our food is made and produced. But with that, we also have to take along that recognition and the understanding of the difference between packing a whole lot of minerals into our food. You can grow food hydroponically and add a huge amount of minerals in a mineral solution that you may be adding to that that food. But again, those minerals aren't necessarily going to be bioavailable. So as we get consumers that are getting concerned about their nutritive quality, there is a perceived nutritive quality and then there is a real nutritive quality. And if you don't equate that with your gut microbiome, you're not going to be able to get the nutrition that it is that you need. Mm. So basically, we need to have healthy microbiome from our foods to be able to process and absorb the nutrition within our foods. Yeah, something like that. It's it's having the, the healthy microbiome that is used to produce our food because those nutrients then, when they get put into the plant, when they're coming from the soil microbiology, and there's a lot of similarities between the soil microbiome and the gut microbiome. The gut environment is anaerobic. There's, it lacks oxygen, whereas the soil environment is aerobic. It does have oxygen. So some of the, the chemistry and some of the organisms are different, but there's similarities in the way that they conduct many of the actions and reactions. And so the biomolecules that are formed by the soil microbiome, when those are taken up and into our plants and into our food, then those nutrients now are in a form that can be processed by the gut microbiome. Mm. Got it. And so that linkage is incredibly important to have. You know, people do look at, you know, making sure you want to wash your food or you want to reduce the chemicals that are on your food. But, you know, if there are some microbes that you're eating along with your food, that can be a good thing. And it it can be. Mm. But the biggest thing is, is how that food is grown. And that's something that is an incredibly exciting and new area of research that we're looking at is how are we growing our food and how is that then translating into the availability of that food to be processed by our gut microbiome. And the last thing I wanted to ask you is you've been talking about this for a long time. So what's been your biggest struggle having to go against the grain and go against the current in terms of what is the norm right now? And what's been most effective for you in getting people to listen? I think the biggest struggle is getting farmers to farmers and ranchers to make transitions. And again, I I understand a lot of it because of the economic risk to farmers, but it is difficult sometimes in the various struggles that I have in, in helping farmers and ranchers when it's it's so difficult for them to be making those changes that are uh, very important to what it is that they can do. 
And so that has been sort of a long-term struggle is trying to figure out how to help them the most and how to be able to approach that so that they can feel comfortable making those changes and transitions. And at the same time, it's not just a comfort level, but also a, a financial support level for that. And what has been sort of exciting for me is to really see how we can put all of this together in a way that is addressing the agricultural industry and farmers and ranchers in and their needs in rural and urban environments. It's helping to address our, again, healthcare needs and our health, human health needs, and also being able to address issues with not just mitigating, but also being able to provide resilience under climate change. And there aren't very many things that we can do that are actually going to address all of those things simultaneously. And that if we move an industry forward in a particular manner, we can really substantially address all of those issues at the same time and all of them in a very positive manner. I oftentimes consider myself to be an optimistic pessimist. <laughs> I am incredibly optimistic about our potential as a species. We have incredible knowledge and knowledge capacity. In a first world country, we have incredible access to information and technology. So the optimism is there. I get pessimistic about our ability and desire to put this into action. I've, I've become more optimistic in the last few years about the fact that not just farmers and ranchers, but citizens, consumers are going to be putting things in action that we need to be put into action. Do you have things like clothing, furniture, and art lying around your home that you no longer make use of, like I do? Well, what if we could exchange them for other people's items that they no longer make use of, but that we actually want? Like for me, that would always be more houseplants. When I first heard about the Buns app, I was really intrigued and excited because not only does this promote sustainability through encouraging reuse and trade, but it also fosters a sense of community with like-minded people near us. If you don't find anything that you want in exchange for what you're offering, you can also accept a currency called BITS, that's spelled B-T-Z, that you can then use at an increasing number of local partnering businesses. It takes just a few seconds to download, so head on to the App Store, search for Buns, spelled B-U-N-Z, hit download, and have fun. If you're in Southern California, you may see me on there as well, and I'll be keeping my eye out to see if you have some houseplants that you're putting up there. So I hope to see you on the app soon as well. For now, to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting publication or social media account you follow? South Dakota Soil Health Coalition has a number of really good videos that they've been posting. And I think that that's a, a great source for people to take a look at. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? That this can actually happen. Despite how, as a pessimist, I kind of am looking for the other shoe to drop. I can't find another shoe to drop. I've been searching 
really, really hard and I can't find it. So I think that there is not much of a downside to this. And that makes me want to keep moving forward in it. Mm. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? I am continuing to try and educate myself about the food that I'm eating and continuing to try and make better choices uh, in the marketplace, not just for myself and my spouse, but I'm the mother of four dogs mm-hmm. and trying to do this for, for what I consider to be my children as well. What's one thing you're working on right now to live more sustainably? Really trying to expand education and outreach and figuring out new mechanisms to be able to help to include more people in helping to get greater levels of education. Um, I've been working on sort of a compilation of different types of tests that farmers and ranchers, as well as citizen scientists, gardeners, uh, school kids could utilize to take a look at the soil. What makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? The generation that's coming and how excited they are about acting as good consumers and citizens. Well, thank you so much for this insightful conversation. And we would, of course, love to keep learning from you. So where can we follow and continue to support your work online? You can continue to follow and support me online. I have my own website through uh, it's uh, chris-systems.com. And uh, you could also follow me through patchateri.com as well. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? As Green Dreamers, my final words of wisdom go back to education. Read, learn, talk, share, discuss, argue, fight, all of those things. Read, learn, talk, share. Let's continue to stay curious and educate ourselves. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. If you're enjoying the podcast and it's been meaningful to you in any way, I really hope you'll consider becoming a patron if you're able to, because I'm really dedicated to keeping the podcast going as a free public resource. So I really do need financial support to be able to do that. So I'm here to ask for your support if you're able to. To become a patron, you can head to greendreamer.com support for more information. And if you'd like to support our work in alternative ways, you can also share the show on social media with friends or family members who may also enjoy the podcast or by writing a hopefully five-star review showing what you're enjoying about the podcast. Finally, as we're wrapping up, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.